Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Glad you're here. It's a beautiful sunny day here in East Central Indiana. Welcome. So glad you're you're with us. My name is Greg Paris, and each uh, each year in January, for many many years now, we talk about the subject of stewardship, and it can be easily misunderstood when a preacher guy like me talks to the church about money and assets and resources and stewardship and that sort of thing. And the reason it can be misunderstood is because you wonder what the motive is. And the instinct is to think, well, you know, maybe God is pitiful. God's pitiful. He needs more money. And so you got to kind of stir it up, stimulate it, you know, get people worked up so that God can get what he needs. Well, let me just, uh, let me just remind you, when I say it, you, you understand that God, that can't be it. God's not needy. <laughs> and indeed, it's true. God is totally self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything that we have, certainly. And so it's not about that. That's not what motivates it. And so the next conclusion is, the assumption made is that, well, the church needs money. So that's why you got to talk about money to stimulate people to give to the church. Well, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. And so as it turns out, the church isn't my church, church isn't your church, it's not our church, the church belongs to Jesus. And so he's promised to protect and provide for his church. And as it turns out, he does a pretty good job of that. So it's not because the church needs the money. In fact, I've been pastoring this church almost 40 years, and I can tell you the number of times that we didn't have enough to, like, pay the bills. And that number's zero. So God's been faithful about that. Jesus has taken care of his church. It belongs to him, and so that works out. So as it turns out, the motive isn't, the motive isn't about the church needing money. So why in the world do we find so much evidence in the Bible, the scriptures, around this subject? Howard Dayton, who's a Christian financial expert, has counted up and says there are approximately 2,350 different verses of Scripture that have to do with money and, and giving, stewardship. Now, why is that? Why, why does the Bible have more to say about this subject than about heaven or about prayer or about love? In fact, all of those subjects combined. Why is there more talked about this subject than virtually anything else? And I think I know the answer. So let me just cut right to it. The reason that God is so interested in this subject is because there, there is a direct relationship with our heart and our wallet. There's a direct connection. There's a direct connection between, between our, our relationship with God and the way we manage resources direct relationship. And I know that you want to resist that and push back away from that, but it's actually true. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So as it turns out, the reason this subject is so prevalent in the scripture and why it's important to teach and preach and encourage one another with isn't because God needs the money or the church needs the money or anybody else needs the money. The, the issue is that God knows that it's essential that we be generous that we actually need to give. We need to be generous in our lives with our words, with our emotions, with our relationships, with the assets that God gives us, the resources he places at our disposal. 
it is central to becoming more like Jesus when we're generous. Listen to, to me, friends. The God we serve is a generous God. If you want to be more like him, you want to be a generous person. And so we want to encourage one another in generosity because it is so central to the character of Christ. And so I hope that encourages you, gives some perspective, some context. You just don't tune me out. So he's talking about money again. It's not about that. It's about God's shaping of our heart and character into the image of Jesus. And it's a very important issue. So uh, that's some perspective on it. Today we've chosen as our text from 2 Corinthians, New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the Apostle Paul encouraging the people at the church at Corinth to be generous people. And so you'll see the context there. I'm going to read for us verses 6 through 11. Our custom is to stand. So as you're able to do that, would you please? And we will honor God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. And remember this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who sows seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I mean, God inspires today and encourages through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so, so much. John Wesley was the founder of uh, this whole movement, now a global movement called Methodism. And, and Wesley had what has been described as a quadrilateral. Fancy word that simply means that he had four categories that, that he encouraged us to consider when we're trying to understand and interpret God's plan for our life, God's will for our life, both what we should believe and how we should practice. So the doctrines that we establish in the faith and also the ethical practices that we engage in life. So faith and practice, uh, faith and life come from these four sources. This is how we sort it out. In descending order, Wesley said that first and foremost, our highest authority in such matters is the scripture. So scripture, the word of God, then tradition, then reason, how we rationalize and work our thoughts out, and then finally experience. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Wesley wisely said, look, you shouldn't use your experiences to decide what you're going to believe about God or how you're going to live your life. All of us have experiences, and sometimes we can interpret them, that was from God, or those circumstances were God-ordained, and he sorted that out, and so I've learned something from that experience. But we should never base, ultimately, what we believe and the convictions we hold that lead toward the behavior patterns we establish in life based on our experiences. It's just too flimsy. It's too, uh, uh, it's too subjective. It's, it's just too unpredictable. And so don't rely on experiences. Now, unfortunately, much of the people in our world today in, in modern, postmodern, post-Christian culture use their experience and what they think and how they feel as primary basis of which to build convictions. It's a bad idea. 
So put that at the bottom of the list. At the top of the list is Scripture. God has revealed his will and his ways through his word. God, God has revealed through Scripture as our primary reference, our primary authority, what we should believe and how we should live. And then there are the traditions. What, what have been the primary teachings of the church for 2,000 years? What are the traditions that have been established by the church with regard to social mores and ethical practices? What, what has the church said over the course of time? What are the traditions? Look to those things next. And then reasonable things. How can, how can we think this through and how can we make sense of what we think God's saying us and then experience? Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. In our lifetimes, there have been some amazing breakthroughs in, in the, the people that God has raised up to help us understand better what the scripture teaches on this subject of generosity and stewardship. Names like Ron Blue and Larry Burkett. Now we have Dave Ramsey, you know, who's front and center doing a great job, Howard, Howard Dayton. So these guys have helped us get a better idea, a better picture of the truth that God has revealed to us on this subject in the scripture. So let me just uh, whet our appetite as we get this thing going today. Let me just offer a few verses of scripture that will help us kind of get in the right frame of mind. Here's the first verse I want to give you. It's 1 Timothy 6.6. Put it on the screen there. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Try to let that soak. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This is a very interesting uh, verse to me because apparently in God's economy, we actually have great gain, watch it now, follow this, when we're not driven by the quest for more. Godliness with contentment, in in other words, I'm content. I'm content with where I am, I'm content with what I have, and somehow in that is great gain. Now, look, we all have many vices. Now, let me make a personal confession to you. <laughs> One of my vices is discontentment. I'm not a very content guy. This verse wears me out. I, in, in fact, it annoys me. <laughs> Godliness with contentment is great gain. I haven't been content, I think, five minutes in my whole life. My wife knows me better than anyone. You can ask her. She, from time to time, historically, she will say, why aren't you just content? Why can't you be happy? with what you have. And because my, my whole thing is I want, I want more, I want it better, I want it faster. Can I get an amen? So, so <laughs> come on, play along, I need help. <laughs> Here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. I've experienced the greatest gain when I was content regardless of the outcome. And this messes with me. Because it proves that what the scripture here says is actually true. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me say it another way. Let's not confuse contentment with being apathetic or having a lack of ambition. I don't think that's implied at all. But let's not also become so consumed with my uh, pursuit of anything that overshadows my pursuit of God himself. So I can't be distracted by my ambition or my discontent and take my eyes off of Jesus. Because godliness with contentment, that's where the gain is. That's where the profit is. There's where the advantage is. That's where my life is benefited the most. Godliness with the contentment. So 
Contentment then becomes one of the most important characteristics of people who are successful. Think about that. Contentment is a characteristic of people who find success in all the important categories of life, including with money. A person who's content, in other words, a person who's perfectly at peace with God, finds, finds benefit and gain with the amount of money they have right now. So their pursuit isn't for more money. They don't want to pile it up. They don't, they're content. These are folks who tend to be successful with money. They're not greedy. They, you know, that's, that sin hasn't grabbed them. So greed doesn't motivate them. Neither are they impoverished. You know, and a, a impoverished mentality says that, that I can't turn loose of anything I have because I'm afraid I won't have enough. If I, if I actually turn loose of anything, then, then I'll be in deficit. I can't trust God with this because so I just hold everything tightly. It's a poverty mentality. And so they've, they've overcome that. So they're not greedy, always reaching for more. They're not impoverished, clutching to everything, failing to let anything go. And so absent of those things, void of those things, here are people who are content with what they have and they tend to be really successful in their relationships, really successful in their work, really successful with money. Because contentment then allows you to not be impulsive. Rather, you can be thoughtful, contemplative, prayerful about how I'm going to live as a steward of the resources God gives me. And these are folks who tend to save more, they tend to invest more, they tend to give more. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's get off of that because it, it, it's annoying to me. I can't. There's a lot there, though, isn't there? I mean, there's, we could spend a month on that. It's just amazing. So just hang on to that. Let that, let that soak. Here's a second verse. Again, we're just trying to stir the pot here a little bit and, and create some interest. Proverbs 13, 22. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, here's just another verse of Scripture, our primary authority for these matters. And here's one of the verses that, that the Bible gives us. A, a good person leaves an inheritance to their children's children. Now, when you hear that, you go, yeah, that's, that's right. That's good. That's a good thing. You should leave something for your kids and your grandkids. And maybe you can even change your whole family tree going forward if I manage well. But, uh, and so, so we know this is true in the financial categories. You can leave material assets to your children when you pass. But there's a lot more than just material assets that you can leave for your, as an inheritance. How about a godly character? How about, how about uh, a meaningful representation of the character of Christ and those virtues that reflect his character, like integrity and trustworthiness and honesty and generosity? The, see, that's, that's important, isn't it? When you think about your life and your legacy, when you look back at your children, your children's children, and generations to come, what do you want to leave with them? So that starts informing how we live today, isn't it? It, it informs today if I can see the legacy I want to leave. One of the, one of the issues I have is I, we've trained both of our boys to be generous, and both of them are very generous. And, and they tend to do well with these values and virtues. And we're very proud of that and thankful to God. 
And our oldest son, Aaron, for example, he and his wife have, have been relatively successful financially. And I know that they, they tithe to their local church and give beyond that. And they're, they're very generous, just generous people just overall. And it's just exciting. I've always felt like because they've been so successful and so generous that their, their pastor in their local church should at least send me a Christmas card. I don't, I don't need a lot, but if he could just acknowledge, hey, thanks for raising this kid so he's so generous. Yeah. I thought maybe this year was going to be the year, but nothing. Just takes it for granted, I guess. I don't know. But I know a good man will leave an inheritance. A good person will do that for their children. Yeah, so hang on to that. Here's a third verse. Again, we're just kind of setting some context. Verse, uh, Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. And that's pretty strong language, isn't it? The borrower is a slave? Yeah. But we all know that it's true, those of us who have experienced some debt and maybe excessive debt, and maybe you're in a place like that right now, and you have an impulse to help people because that's a, that's a Christian, Christian tendency. You see a need, you recognize an issue that needs addressed, someone's going to have to deal with that. Oh, for example, the Christmas offering. Could I just, could I just uh, compliment everyone on the Christmas offering? You know, we set a goal of about $65,000 for the Christmas offering. Maybe you saw in your bulletin, we went over $100,000 in the Christmas offering. Come on. That's, that's amazing. That is so great. So obviously that struck a chord with, with a number of us and we really feel strongly about doing something about the recovery culture in our community. So looking forward to the opportunities God's gonna give us for that. So thanks for your generosity with that. But there probably were people in the church who thought that's just a great thing. What a great cause. How, how good is that? But you really couldn't respond maybe the way you wanted to or maybe not at all to that opportunity to be generous because you're under the pressure of debt. You know, you can't help people if you're broke. And you, can, and you feel the frustration of that. And you feel the stress created by that. And as it turns out, the, the scripture teaches, you know, being in debt, excessive debt, that's, that's not good. That, that's like enslaves you. It corrupts you. It, it burdens you. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal says that 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. That's a big number. Just hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, that's, that's not the way you want to live your life. We know that, uh, generally speaking, 52% of marriages in America fail. 52%. Uh, that's across the board. Doesn't matter what group or category you're in, 52% fail. And, and we also know this, now this is, this is pretty shocking, that of marriages that fail within the first seven years, 90% of those marriages fail. By the testimony of those who are, who are losing their marriage, say it's because of financial stress. 90% of marriages that fail early within the first seven years is because of financial pressure. We have, we have an unusual, uh, unique burden in our world today because our culture actually encourages debt. You know, 
Dave Ramsey goes crazy about the FICO score. <laughs> I got to get my I got to get my credit rating up. And Ramsey just thinks it's insane that everybody chases their credit score because the implication is that the higher my credit score, the more money I can borrow. (laughs) That's all it's about. And so he asks out loud, why do, why do we do this? And so we have this, have this enormous consumer debt, credit card debt and car payments in cars that we really can't afford. And now with student loans, this is a huge, huge issue in the emerging culture. It is a big deal. And so what we're hearing now are these voices that understand the scripture well are starting to push back on a culture that says, stop borrowing money to go to school. Why pile up so much student debt? Why are you doing that? There's gotta be a different way, a different approach. And there are different things you can do. But, you know, everybody's doing it, and so you just fall in line, and it's just easy. You're, you know, when you're in college, you know, and you, and you need pizza money on top of your room and board, you know, you just borrow it. It's not good. And so, and so we, we hear the scripture that the borrower becomes the slave to the lender. I was sitting with a student at my grad school, Asbury Seminary, uh, when I was there for a board meeting. We were having lunch with some of the students, and I had a young man sitting right across from me, and what kind of ministry are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about youth ministry when I get out. Great, great. So he, this guy's going to get out of school and he's going to take a job making forty, fifty thousand dollars as a youth pastor somewhere. I mean, that's what he's going to get paid. And I said, "Do you have any student debt?" And he said, "Yes." He said, "When I finish, I'll have ninety thousand dollars in student debt." <laughs> wow. What? Seriously? So it's just a, it's true. Let's just say it's true that the borrower becomes slave to the lender. And it puts you, it puts you behind, it just puts you underneath. You know, it's like almost suffocating. And, it, and, it's, and it's hard to, to get out. So here's what we know. We know that Jesus spent so much time talking about this subject because about 80% of how you manage as a steward, as a generous person in the economy that God has established, about 80% of the way you function there is about behavior. And about 20% is about skills and knowledge and understanding how to manage. By the way, Financial Peace University, uh, as, as uh, Devin just mentioned a moment ago, begins here at Union Chapel at this hour on January 19th. If you have not taken Financial Peace University, you have to take it. If you wait much longer, you will be the last person in the United States who has not taken Financial Peace University. You don't want to be in that club. It's just crazy. So you've got to sign up. Go online and sign up. This is the way you have to do it. Uh, This is the way Ramsey's organization works. You know, when you're the king, you can do whatever you want. So this is how they do it. So you've got to do, follow their rules. It's 109 bucks and and it covers you for life. Once you've paid that, that money, you can take financial peace anytime thereafter. Some of you have taken financial peace and you need to go back and take it again because you need remedial learning. You need a refresher course because you started well, but then you kind of fell off and you fell back in the rut. I, this happens. You're not the only one. This happens to people. You're not, you may be in the room today saying, I, I don't even know where to start with my finances. I don't know what to do. This is the place to start. 
Everybody messes. How many of you have made mistakes with money? Raise your hand. You've made it. You've just, I was stupid. I did something stupid with money. Everybody acts stupid with their money from time to time. So we're all in the same boat. And this is a beautiful way to understand step-by-step. They're baby steps that you can start sorting your financial future. And I encourage you, I just admonish you to do it. Don't give in. Don't give up to thinking that, that it's never going to work out for me. It's like, it's like the start of the new year, you know, you start these New Year's resolutions. You go, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. And it's not, it's not 15 minutes until you're hearing this thought in your head, I should just eat a cookie. I mean, really, life is short and there are cookies. Why would you want to deprive yourself of a cookie? I mean, you've always been 20 pounds overweight. That's just the way you are. That's the way you're going to be. So have a cookie, right? Or you're in this car and it's, you know, it's got 120,000 miles on it and you know, starting to look a little raggedy and, and your neighbor just got a new car and and you're thinking, you know, I could probably squeeze, you know, a car, another car payment into my budget, and I'd really like to have a nicer car. And so you, you give in to that because you think, well, you know, I've always had a car payment. I, I mean, I've always had a car payment. I've never had a car without a payment. This is just the way it is. And so, I, you know, I'll just do it again. Get me another payment. Wait. Wait, wait. <laughs> don't, don't do that. And some folks... They go, they go all the way to the extreme, and this is the internal speak. I, look, I can't take care of myself. This is the extreme. I can't manage my own life. So I'm just going to pray that God will put the right governor in place, the right congressman in place, the right president in place, so that the government will take care of me because I can't take care of myself. What? You can, see, you can't find that worldview here. Can't find that here. The worldview that you find here is that there is one primary way for an able-bodied, able-minded person to get money, and it's called work. It's called work. Here's the formula. Work equals money. That's it. That's the whole formula. Work equals money. Is this too complicated? You see, if you, want, if you want money, then you have to work. You're able-bodied, able-minded. The Bible says you should work. And so the way you get money, so I don't, I just can't, I can't, I don't have enough money. Then you have to do more work. Well, the job I have doesn't, doesn't pay everything. It's not enough. So you have to get like another job. Because your problem, your problem isn't a money problem. Your problem is a work problem because work equals money. The, the way you get... I'm, see, I'm a little old school. I'm a little messed up. I'm not, I'm not in touch with modern ways of getting money. Yeah. But see, here's the opportunity. Here's the opportunity you have. For example, if you drop 30 pounds... And people who love you know you, and they recognize you've lost 30 pounds. They'll, they'll ask you two questions. Yeah, I've noticed you've lost 30 pounds. Um, are you feeling better? And then the next question always is, how did you do that? Because it's impressive, isn't it? 
It's impressive someone set out to lose 30 pounds. They did it. That's remarkable. That's, that's amazing. And you want to know, what did you do to lose 30 pounds? That's, that's inspiring. Or, or, or a, a person who knows that your marriage was in a bad place and, and it was in great crisis and you weren't sure you were going to make it. And then six months later, they see you and you're holding hands and you're all cuddly at church. You know, you're sitting, sitting close and they notice and they say, I, I know that you guys had some struggles. You seem to be doing well right now. Oh yeah, we're doing great. God, it's a miracle. God's really done something in our lives. What, is you, what do you ask a person like that? How did you do that? What happened? What made the difference? And this is the opportunity that we have in the area of our finances in today's culture. Because the culture says, you know, leverage yourself until you can't breathe. So you maintain some kind of status because that's the highest value, you know. Buying stuff with that you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't even like. And, and so here we find people like this. And it happens. And, and, and so if, if you get someone who gets financially stabilized and now becomes generous because they're able to give, able to help, able, able to be that way, folks around them are gonna say, how did you, what did you, what's the key? How did you, and, and you'll have an opportunity to give a great witness for God, a witness for Christ how he's changed your life, changed your patterns. Five practical things, real quick, write these down. For number one, get on a budget. Get on a budget. Luke 14, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? See if you have enough to complete it? Yeah. I'm gonna say something that's just common sense. Here's the statement. Successful businesses run on a budget. Successful businesses run on a budget. Everybody knows that, right? Otherwise, you're not successful without a budget. So successful business builds a budget. They target their revenue. They target for their expenses. And thereby, they can predict their profits. Monthly profits, quarterly profits, year-end profits. This is what successful businesses do. And you say, well, yeah, obviously. How can you run a business if you don't know the numbers? You got to know your numbers. If you don't know what your... <laughs> If you don't know what your revenue is projected to be or your overhead is, how can you, how you possibly contemplate a profit? So you got to know your numbers if you're going to be successful in business. And everybody gets that. Everybody knows that. So here's my question. Why not apply that to your personal life? Get on a budget. Most people are not on a budget. And so, so this is where stress is created. Uh, you have more month than money. You get to the end of the month, you go, oh, no, I didn't have enough again. I don't know what happens. Now we're back to that question of why do marriages fail, especially early in marriage? All of this pressure. And so Ramsey just says it this way. Look, if you're fussing and fighting about money all the time every day, he said, why don't you just, rather than, than fight about it Monday through Friday, why not just pick one day a month at the beginning of the month and fight that day and fight over the budget? Establish the budget together and then together in a unified, cohesive unit in your family, you work the budget through the end of the month. It's like magic. It's, it's like, it's like a, a miracle that starts to happen because now you're not frivolously just spending money on things and you don't know where it went. How many times you get to the, to an end of a paper and you go, where did the money go? Where you know, some, money talks, you heard that phrase, money talks. 
And sometimes it just goes, bye-bye. You don't know where it went. It's just gone. And it's because you're not on a budget. You're not applying every dollar to a specific task. You put it to work for you. Uh, again, Ramsey has this free app on his webpage, every dollar. It's free. It's free. And it's just simple. And you just download that, that spreadsheet and you sit down. You know, uh, most people marry their opposite. Opposites attract. So about 80% of marriages are between people who are opposites. Beth and I are extreme opposites. That's, that's why our love for each other is intense. And when we fight, oh, God. We had years ago, finally, our close friends had to tell us, are you guys okay? And they said, yeah, we're fine. What do you mean? Well, every time you guys kind of have an exchange, it scares us. And we realized we were scaring people with the intensity of our disagreements. So we had to modify that. So we only do that privately now. <laughs> That's not true. We just, we love each other all the time. It's perfect harmony, 100% of the time. <laughs> Should have been to church today. Pinocchio was the speaker. His nose kept growing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> so, so watch what happens, though. The Bible, the Bible teaches that where there's love and unity, there's great power. So think about the power that can be released in your life and your family when, when those of you in your family, you get in an agreement about where the money is going to be spent. You have a budget. Now it becomes empowering. When we first got on a budget years ago, it was like we got a raise. Man, this, this is great. Now, it, it's about behavior. It's about discipline. It's about doing the right things and sticking to it. But when you get to the end of a period and you look back, you go, man, that is, that's so liberating. That's so freeing. So the scripture says you become slave to the, a slave to the debt the opposite effect is also there, that, you, that you're set free. Now, this is kind of like slave language. I'm liberated. I'm free. I'm no longer bound. It's a, it's a fabulous thing. So get on a budget. Here's, here's the next thing. I have to go faster now. Act your wage. Act your wage. You have to learn to live on less than you make. In the house of the wise, there are stores of choice food and oil. But a foolish man devours all he has. Foolish man devours all he has. So don't be foolish. You have to live within your means, act your wage. It's common sense, isn't it? You have to be having a budget to know where that is, where those lines are, where those parameters are. Here's number three. Write this down. Save. Save money. In the house of the wise are stores. If you're a wise person, you'll save. Ramsey teaches, and again, I'm just, I'm just, this is right off his playbook, Financial Peace University, save for three reasons. Number one, for an emergency fund, because emergencies come up, life, life is an up and down experience. If life is good for you today, it may not be so good tomorrow. If life is not so good today, it'll be better tomorrow. That's the way life is. And so you've got to be ready for a rainy day, because it happens to all of us. 
And it's just smart. So you save first for an emergency fund. Ultimately, Ramsey teaches that you want to have three to six months of expenses saved in an emergency fund. Uh, and you can, you can feel the security that that creates just by talking about it. The second thing is you, you save so you can pay cash for things rather than borrowing money. So pay cash. Wait. Defer your gratification. Be patient until you have the cash. Then go buy the car or that item, that sofa or whatever you need. So pay cash for things. And then the third thing is to build wealth. You save to build wealth. And you've heard this illustration. If you're between 30 and 70 years old, if, if at 30 years old you take $100 a month and put it in a, a decent growth stock mutual fund in your Roth IRA, and you do that for the next 40 years, $100 a month for 40 years, uh, you'll have approximately $1.1 million. This is one of my regrets. I wish I knew then what I know now. But if, listen, if you're 30 years old in this room and younger in this room, there is absolutely no reason in this world that you shouldn't retire as a millionaire. No reason. It's $100 a month. And everyone should do it. So save money. Then number four, get out of debt. Proverbs 22, the rich rule over the poor, the borrower is slave to the lender. You can't find anywhere in the scriptures that God uses debt to bless his people. Not one place. There's not one positive mention of debt in the scripture. Anytime you see debt in the scripture, anytime you can't find one positive place, anytime you find debt, you're either described as a slave or as a fool or you're under a curse. There's all kinds of things mentioned about debt. Not one of them is good. And yeah, heads up, heads up, get out of debt. Forbes 400, the wealthiest people in the world, listen to this number, 70%, uh, 75% of the richest people in the world, top 400 people in the world, when asked this question, what's the number one way to become wealthy? This is what they said. Get out of debt and stay out of debt because your personal income is your most powerful wealth building tool. Any questions? So get out of debt. Ramsey recommends the debt snowball. You take your smallest debt. You know, you got three card, credit cards you owe money on. Take the one with the smallest balance and start attacking it first. Pay the minimum on the others and snowball it from lowest to the highest debt and start whacking them out. So if it may be a credit card. Then it may be maybe your car loan. Then it may be your student debt. Then you, always, then you ultimately get to your house mortgage. You start paying that off early too. Yeah, get out of debt. And now here's the fifth one, last one. Give generously. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 from our text, for God loves a cheerful giver. As I mentioned earlier, you can't help other people if you're broke. And so it's fun to be generous. Listen to me. For those of you who haven't experienced this yet in your life, listen to me, and this is the truth. The most fun you will ever have with money is when you give it away. It is so great. God loves a cheerful giver because actually that's what it produces. It produces joy when you give, when you're generous. It just it liberates your life. And Dr. Billy Graham, when he was alive, he said, if you get this part of your life right, you have a better chance of getting all the other parts of your life right. And this is so important, so, so central, so essential, being a generous person. I have a, good, a friend who's a casual friend who's... Uh, 
done very well financially. And so part of his, part of his day is to stuff a $100 bills in his pocket before he leaves the house. And his simple prayer in the morning, God, help me run into people who need $100 today. And every day he just gives $100 bills to people. I just sense that God asked me to do this. God bless you. Jesus loves you. Here's $100. <laughs> How much fun is that? That's got to be fun. You know, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. To, and, and, so, and so it just brings joy. It's a great, you know, giving a, a waitress or a waiter a tip, you know, that just blows them up. How much fun is that? That's just great fun. Uh, and no, I'm not going to give you the address of the guy who gives out $100 bills so you can go sit out in front of his house and act pitiful. Stuff too needy. Don't do that. Yeah. So let's just recap. Behaviors create wealth. Behavior patterns. So, so we need to act our wage. We need to save. We need to get out of debt. We need to learn to build great relationships and see the value of giving generously. And these are the practical steps that we take in order to be effective stewards and live as a generous person. I think you've heard it. This is a good start, right? Something to think about. So let's stop and just pray for a moment. Lord, I thank you today for your word. Thank you for the truth that it provides for us in this most important area of life. God, we want to be more and more like Jesus. And in order to be more like him, God, help us to be generous and to establish the behaviors and the patterns, the disciplines in our lives that allow us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, would you stand with us as we sing?